If you have your Bible with you this morning, would you turn to the book of First Peter? First Peter. We're going to pick up where we left off. It's been a blessing so far. As we think about this, it's a theological, kind of a weighty theological greeting. A weighty theological introduction and greeting in this letter that the Apostle Peter wrote so many years ago, prior to 70 A.D., so this is within the first century, the apostolic era. The apostles are still living. The church is spreading throughout the known world from Jerusalem. And it is meeting along the way persecution. The people of God are suffering. And they're going to suffer even more in the coming years in in church history. We look back and we know now that 70 A.D., Nero came in and destroyed Jerusalem and burned the temple. And the Christian church was severely persecuted during that time period. And throughout church history, it is just part and parcel. It is hand in hand with what it is to be a Christian is to be persecuted. Jesus taught us that we would be persecuted If we follow him, if we take up our crosses daily and follow him, we will be persecuted for righteousness sake, for being children of God, for being Christians. And I say all that because this weighty theological greeting at the beginning of this letter is such for a reason, namely so that this would come to the Christians who were considered spiritual exiles and strangers in the world, so that they would hear this from this divine revelation, from God's perspective. They would be able to have this encouraging, stabilizing truth that will give them courage and strength and stability in the midst of persecution and suffering, and in the midst of a world that is truly and in most ways not our home. We are citizens of heaven from which we await our eternal king. But until he returns, we are here as witnesses. We are here as ambassadors. We are here as those Spiritual exiles in the world, strangers and pilgrims who proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. What we'll do is we'll read the first two verses again and we'll pray. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, what we've been doing with this introduction, these two verses, essentially is to break it down into the respective phrases that will help us gather an understanding of what he's trying to say, what he is saying 
to the church then and also would be true of the church today, the people of God today. Because as I mentioned, not only were they facing persecution, but we face persecution today. Now, in America, we don't face persecution the way that they were in the first century. And we don't even face persecution in America the way that our brothers and sisters in other countries face persecution as we speak. However, we all do suffer in some ways under the weight of the reality that this world is broken. That the philosophies of this age, the, 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 the thinking of this age, and the, the actions of people in fallen sinful conditions are, are terrible. And we understand this. We, we understand that the world is, has been plunged into the depths of sinfulness. And that we all inherited a nature of sin and that, that we, we long for that time when Jesus will return and he will establish his eternal kingdom forever and ever in perfect righteousness, perfect peace, perfect joy, and that forever. We long for that. But while we live here, and we live in the world, we look in the mirror, we see in, in the introspection of our own hearts and lives, we see sin. We look out at the world and we see people making decisions and people that live according to humanistic philosophies that break our hearts. Sin. And so this is intended to lift us up to the divine perspective, the eternal perspective, so that we would have ballast in our boats. So that when persecution comes, so that when the difficulties and the challenges of living as exiles, spiritual exiles in the world, we face those challenges, we will be stable and steadfast and immovable with great confidence in whose we are and who we are in Christ. So... There are six phrases to this, these two verses, and we have looked at four of them. So we'll go back through just to see how we get to where we are, and then we'll pick up where we left off. The first phrase is in verse 1, and it is the phrase, elect exiles. And I won't go back through all of the detail and all of the scriptures. We're going to work hard, you pray, this week to get those messages onto our website. You can go back And listen to those. But suffice it this morning for me to just reiterate with you that the word elect is the Greek word eklektos, meaning chosen. That's what it means. Picked out, selected. So this phrase, elect exiles, elect strangers, chosen strangers and exiles in the world, scattered abroad among the among the various cities that he mentions. So this is a term, as we discovered, that was used for God's covenant people, both in the Old Testament, like Deuteronomy 7, 6, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession, key phrase, his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. God chose them to be his treasured possession out of all the other peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was a term then used for the covenant people of God in the new covenant, the New Testament, the church. For example, Romans 8.33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? 
It is God who justifies. Or as the Apostle Paul reiterates his ministry and he says, Therefore I endure, this is 2 Timothy 2.10, 2 Timothy 2.10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And so the apostle is writing to the elect, the chosen of God. And then the second phrase that qualifies that phrase is found in verse 2 after the listing of the cities. He says this election is according to the foreknowledge of God. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father specifically. If you see it there in verse 2. So what we have here, and I remind you, and even with this illustration, this picture there on the screen, is the picture of the work of the Trinity. That there is one true and living God who has revealed himself in three distinct persons. One God, three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we see them all in these first two verses. This is a weighty theological introduction and greeting. And the first person that we meet in this text, in verse 2, is God the Father. Foreknown by God the Father. Before the world was, God foreknew His chosen. He foreknew us. And we talked about the understanding of that foreknowledge. And we determined that that could not be defined simply with the term foresight. That will not suffice. And you can go back again and listen to the problems. If we reduce it to foresight, it would equal to I chose myself. And that would render the language of election and the elect useless and would empty it of any significance whatsoever. The second problem, it would make God reactionary. And we know from Scripture that God is not reactionary. And the third problem, it would mean that God would be choosing us on the basis of something that we do. And that cannot be the case, according to Romans chapter 9, where we find very pointedly and very clearly that we, that God's purposes of election have nothing to do with what we do or do not do, but solely on the basis of His free and sovereign grace. The fourth problem with reducing foreknowledge to foresight would be that although God does know all things from the beginning to the ending in all of its detail, the future He has known from the beginning. That is not the way the word is used in Scripture. Both, we looked at the immediate context here in 1 Peter 1, verse 2, 1 Peter 1, verses 19 and 20, to see that it's not the way the word is used. And it's not the way the word is used in the broader context of Scripture. And we looked at those texts that help us to understand this definition of foreknowledge. Namely, foreknowledge is God's predetermined relationship of love For someone that he chose by his pure and free and sovereign grace. It is not on the basis of anything we would do. And so the word foreknowledge is a relationship word. A relationship that is fixed in the mind of God before the ages began. And so we can see this and we looked at that from Scripture. 
Romans chapter 8, I'll just give you this one again, is, helps us to understand it, I think, and to hear it in its scope. And we know that all things, this is Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, there's that word, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He glorified. And there's the golden chain of links that are inseparable links of Romans eight twenty-eight to 30. So that was the second phrase that we spent a lot of time on. This election is according to the foreknowledge of God. The third phrase that we looked at last week in verse 2, we reduced to this heading, sanctified by God the Holy Spirit. Sanctified by God the Holy Spirit. You see it there in verse 2, we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In the sanctification, here comes the second person of the Trinity according to this particular text, in the sanctification of the Spirit, or to say it another way, we are sanctified by God, the Holy Spirit. The word sanctified, as you know, means to be set apart to God, to be set apart for God, to be set apart with God, to be separated and consecrated as holy unto the Lord. Let me just give you a Scripture, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. We looked at it. I read it again. Second Thessalonians 2, 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because He chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit, same thing, and belief in the truth, which renders this definition. The sanctifying work of the Spirit of God, or God the Spirit, is the work of the Spirit to set apart experientially the elect of God to God. Including all of the means necessary to bring about their salvation and sanctification. And so the Apostle Peter writes here in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9, You are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Does he not possess all the people in the world? He does. He made them all. He sustains them all. And yet this particular text, again, is talking about a special kind of possession, a unique possession among all the other possessions in the world, he says, for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that is the work of God, the Holy Spirit, to call us out of the darkness into his marvelous light. And so it is the work of the Spirit of God to call us out through the hearing and preaching of the gospel and the regenerating, drawing power of God, the Holy Spirit. And we spent all of our time thinking about this from all sorts of scriptures. This is 
a necessity because of the fallen nature of human beings into sinful depravity. For example, 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Or, Romans chapter 8, verses 5 to 8, says this, For those who live according to the flesh... Set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh, listen, is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is why we need this regenerating, renewing power of God, the Holy Spirit, to call us out of the darkness into the light, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that can understand the truth of the gospel. And so we looked at that from Scripture. It is the work of God, the Holy Spirit, that awakens us to spiritual life and repentance and faith in the person and redeeming work of Christ. It is the work of God, the Holy Spirit, that works in concert with the hearing of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to convict us of sin and open our eyes to the reality of the sufficiency of Christ who died as a substitutionary sacrifice. He opens our eyes to see this all-sufficient nature of the person and the work of Jesus. He is the one who awakens in us both repentance and faith. Without this work of the Spirit of God, we will not do it. He awakens us to faith so that we do believe and trust in Christ alone And then it is a work of God the Spirit who continues to sanctify us and give us holy desires and holy passions. Philippians 2, 12 to 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For, because... It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. That is the work of the Spirit. That's the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So what do we have thus far? And this brings us to where we pick up this morning. Peter writes to the elect, to the chosen exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Those he foreknew according to his predetermined plan with this unique, loving, and special kind of knowing. Those marked off in the mind of God before the foundation of the world to be his purchased possession through the sanctifying work of God, the Holy Spirit. And you can see there where you need to go next on your outline. For, this is the fourth phrase that we're going to look at in verse 2. For obedience to God the Son. For obedience to God the Son. Look at it, if you will, in verse 2. So this is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctifying uh, sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ 
and for sprinkling with his blood. So the fourth phrase in helping us to understand this is that we all of this happens. The, the election and according to the foreknowledge of God through the sanctifying work of the Spirit is for our obedience to God the Son. So believers enter the new covenant by obeying the gospel and through the sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ, that is, His cleansing, atoning work of redemption. Let's take those one at a time. So this is still that, that fourth phrase, the obedience of God the Son. So to obedience to God the Son. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote about, and he calls it the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. Romans chapter 1. So I've been rushing along, not giving you time to turn, but now I'm going to slow down because this is new territory. So you can take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, and we'll see this. All of this is happening so that we would be obedient to God the Son. You see, there's two sides to our conversion experience. There is the sprinkled blood and there is the obedience to the gospel call. The gospel call says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And you are, you and I are called through the gospel from God to repent and turn away from sin and trust in the finished work of Christ who died as a substitutionary sacrifice. So what does he mean when he says obedience to God the Son? This is what Paul calls the obedience of faith. Romans 1.1 Paul, a servant of, Je- of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of, the Son of God, in power according to the Spirit of holiness, By the resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. This is what he says. Verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship. To bring about the obedience of faith. For the sake of his name among all nations. Did you see it there? Obedience of faith. There is a call in the gospel that we are to submit to. That we are to embrace in obedience because we believe. We believe. We believe God. We take Him at His word as He has revealed Himself in Holy Scripture through the preaching of the gospel specifically so that we believe and obey the obedience of faith. Or... Romans chapter 6. You're in Romans 1. Turn over, if you will, to Romans 6. In Romans 6, verses 17 and 18, Paul writes this. Romans 6, 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become what? 
obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Obedient from the heart to that standard of teaching to which you were, you were committed. We are saved, listen, by faith alone. But faith that saves is never alone. I'll say that again. We are saved, justified, and accepted in the sight of God on the basis of faith alone. It's not on the basis of our works at all. But faith that saves is never alone. It is always accompanied and expressed by actions of obedience of love to God. That is a teaching of the New Testament that could not be clearer. And when the Apostle Peter writes about this, he says, you're elect exiles, strangers in the world, and you are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, sanctified by God the Holy Spirit when the gospel was preached for obedience to Jesus Christ, God the Son. This idea that circulates in church history and even today that there is no obedience necessary or no obedience that is, that is even a fruit of necessity of the change that the Holy Spirit works in us is simply not a biblical truth. The sanctifying work and the power of God, the Holy Spirit, to change us and to make us, as Paul says, new creations in Christ Jesus, so that he exclaims, the old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All things have become new to those who are now in Christ. Faith that saves, if it is true, biblical saving faith, It is not alone, but it is accompanied by and given evidence by actions of loving obedience to God in Christ. Think about Ephesians chapter 2. You have familiarity with that. Ephesians chapter 2. Everybody loves this text. If you understand the beauty of the grace of God. Ephesians chapter 2. And verse 8 says that we are saved by grace. For by grace, unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor from God on the basis of Christ, not you. That's how you're saved. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But, listen to the next verse. For, we are His, God's, workmanship. He is the potter, we are the clay. And it says, created in Christ Jesus for, what? Good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone, but that faith is evidenced by the works that God has also, before the ages began, prepared for us to walk therein. And so when the Apostle Peter writes, he says all of this is leading up to your salvation. Your conversion, whereby you become obedient 
to God and the call of the gospel, even as you are sprinkled with the cleansing blood of Christ. Of course, this is exactly what Jesus taught. Look, if you will, in John chapter 14. John chapter 14 and verse 15. John 14 and verse 15. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Or John 14, 21. Down to verse 23. John 14, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my, what? Word. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him, our abode. So here he reckons it to keeping his word or keeping his commandments. And that's going to be very important here in just a moment as we bring this all together. This is what the apostle John taught. If you turn over to 1 John, turn over to 1 John. It's just after 1 and 2 Peter in the New Testament. 1 John chapter 2. And here we're still thinking about how all of this Gracious work of God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, is for obedience to the Son. And it's not obedience so that you're saved by your works, but it's obedience because you love Him, because you've been given a new heart. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. If you didn't wear your hard-toed shoes today, you might want to go get them. And this we know that we have come to know Him. How do you know if you're a Christian? If we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His, his word in Him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in Him. Whoever says, He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Remember what we read from Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and following, when it says that we were predestined to be conformed to what? The image of the Son. So it's the way that the Apostle Peter writes it here is that it's for obedience to Jesus Christ. Look, if you will, you're in 1 John 2, turn over to the next chapter. 1 John chapter 3. And this one will really get you. <laughs> this one is uh, somewhat mind-boggling to people who hear all the time, grace, grace, marvelous grace. And it is marvelous, and it is beautiful, and it is true. And what it produces is a disposition of the heart to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. True and saving and biblical faith is not just a mental assent to Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah who died on the cross for sinners who rose to the grave, ascended to heaven and coming back here, yeah, I say, I believe that. That's not true in saving faith. True in saving faith and biblical faith is more than that. It's a radical transformation of the heart that gets down to the core of the will to do 
and to desire godly living, holy living, Christ-like living. Now, 1 John 3, 6 to 10. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed, the Spirit, abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. See why I told you to put on the shoes? The way the Apostle Peter writes this, as he says, this is what the work of God's grace before the ages began in his selection, according to those that he had in his predetermined plan, fixed in the mind of God before the ages began, a relationship that is unique, a relationship that is special, kind of knowing. That is made effectual by the sanctifying work of God the Holy Spirit. And it produces a life of obedience to Jesus Christ, God the Son. 1 John 3.24 Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God. And God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. How do we know? Because of the indwelling Spirit of God who gives us, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, who gives us the will, the desire, and then the ability to work according to the purposes of God. It can't be clearer from Scripture. It just cannot be clearer. Or one more, 1 John 5, verses 2 to 3. 1 John 5, verses 2 and 3. By this we know... That we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. (laughs) For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. Why? Why not? The law is a burdensome terror that no one can keep. Why is it now, according to the Apostle John, not burdensome? It is because of the radical transformation of the heart by the work of God the Holy Spirit. You must be born again, born from above, radically transformed at the core of who you are in the heart. So now the heart that and the mind that is set on the flesh that is hostile to God, that is not obedient to the law of God, nor can it uh, please God, is now subdued and changed and transformed so that this heart and mind now loves God and the things of God. And now they're not burdensome, but a delight. That's the fourth phrase, number five. The fifth phrase that we want to look at is also in verse two. And it is also a result of the electing, foreknowing, sanctifying work of God 
the Trinity. He says in verse 2, not only for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His what? His blood. So here we're thinking of a two-sided coin. On the one side, the preaching of Jesus crucified for sinners as a substitutionary sacrifice. The call of the gospel says to bow the knee, submit down your heart and your mind and your soul and all that you are to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And you do. But on the other side of it is the sanctifying, purifying, sin-forgiving, shed blood of Christ the Lamb of God. On the other side is the sprinkling with the blood that gives the forgiveness, listen to me, when you don't obey. Isn't that good? When you don't obey, there is an atonement. There is the blood of Christ sealing your position in the new covenant people of God that cleanses sin and grants forgiveness. So the other side of the conversion experience is the cleansing, forgiving of sin, grace through the substitutionary sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son. And this is a binding of the new covenant through Christ, sprinkled with the blood to wash us from sin, bind us into this new covenant, people of God, to walk in obedience to God in Christ. Now I'll show you where I get all of that. There's two other places in the New Testament that this idea of sprinkling with blood occur. Both of them are in the book of Hebrews. So if you want to make your way to Hebrews chapter 9, we'll look at that. This idea of the sprinkling with blood is not to be confused with baptism. Please, hear me say that. Sprinkling with blood is nowhere associated with baptism. There's not a bloody baptism washing. That's nowhere in Scripture. This is talking about the cleansing power and the atoning power of the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. Which was the the means that God can and does forgive sinners. And it is also the way in which the new covenant between God and the covenant people is enacted and activated and put into force. So what we're going to do is read two New Testament texts that help us to understand this and then go back to the Old Testament and understand where they get the idea from, the sprinkling with with blood. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 19 and 20. Hebrews 9, 19. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book, the Word of God, itself, and all the who? All of the people. Saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. So, the Word of God 
and their agreement, we're going to see, to submit to God as He has revealed Himself in His Word, in Scripture, enters the people of God, into the covenant with God, and that is mediated through a sacrifice. And the sprinkling of the blood on the people was representation of the cleansing power and forgiving power of God through the mediatorship of a sacrifice. And it would then be a binding expression of their participation in the covenant as the covenant people of God. Hebrews chapter 12 is the other place. And this, it's, it's simply alluded to. Hebrews 12.24. Hebrews 12.24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a what? I didn't give you time to turn. Hebrews twelve twenty four, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, let's go back to the book of Exodus chapter 24. And see where, they, where he gets this. The same thing that we're going to see, according to the Apostle Peter... Is, uh, is going to be pictured for us with the Old Testament people of God. Okay, Obedience to the Word of God, submission to God's Word in the book, and the sprinkling of the blood. And then the Apostle Peter says that your elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of God the Holy Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and the sprinkling with His blood. Obedience and sprinkled blood. Obedience and sprinkled blood. Exodus 24, verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. This is a submission to the Word of God. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be what? Obedient. And Moses then took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance to all of these words. Obedience and sprinkled blood. Obedience and sprinkled blood. The shed blood was a tangible demonstration that two parties had made a commitment, a covenant. And this would be a tangible way for them to enter into this agreement. And really, in that context, it was to say, if you don't keep your end of the bargain, may this happen to you. And if you don't keep your end of the bargain, may this happen to you. 
And the people were sprinkled. They said, we will obey, even though we know that they were not. Nevertheless, this is the type, this is the picture that the Apostle Peter picks up on. Israel made a promise of obedience to God, which was mediated through a sacrifice. And beloved, when a person comes to trust in the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ, two things are happening if that faith is true, saving, biblical faith. Number one, they are trusting in the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Jesus to bring them into a peaceful relationship with God. That's the first thing that saving biblical faith is doing. It is trusting in the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Jesus to bring them into a peaceful relationship with God. Through the sacrifice, we are forgiven, we are accepted, and we believe, we trust in the sufficiency of that sacrificial, atoning, redeeming work. And the second thing, the second thing that we are doing if we are exercising true biblical saving faith, is we are also submitting to Jesus' lordship over our lives. We are submitting to his sovereign lordship, even as we are trusting in the sufficiency of his substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. And so here we see in this opening greeting, in this letter, the Apostle Peter writes these two realities. Obedience to the Lordship of Christ and the effect of the substitutionary sacrifice to cleanse us from sin and to bring forgiveness of sins. Turn to just a couple more places. Acts chapter 5, verse 30, and 30, 30 to 32. Acts chapter 5. I want you to see the same thing here in the preaching of the apostles here in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5, verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as what, if you turned? As what? Leader and Savior. Lord and Savior. You see the two signs? Lord and Savior, Lord and Savior, to give repentance to Israel and what? Forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. Obedience and sacrifice, blood, entering into the covenant through the submission of our lives and all that we are to the Word of God. God has revealed Himself to us in His Holy Word, the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, we have the revelation of the God of creation. The revelation of the purposes of God. The revelation of the character of God and the nature of God, the attributes of God. And the nature of the call of the gospel is to submit yourself to the Lordship of God in Christ and believe in the sufficiency of His substitutionary work. Now, let me help you just a moment in closing. You remember that that we read from 1 John? And everybody in the room said, well, I don't know if I'm a Christian or not. That's what that probably should have done to every one of us. Made us ask that question. We need to understand that the work of Jesus 
and the sprinkling of his blood and we entering through into the covenant, into the covenant people of God is a work of atonement and sacrifice that continues to cleanse us and to provide intercession and forgiveness when we don't obey. Do you feel the balance yet? There's no Christian. There, is, there are no Christians who do not have a disposition of the heart that is submitted to the Lordship of Jesus. In His Word, you believe and trust and listen, submit to obey. But, there in this life are also no Christians who make it to a place of utter and total perfection of that obedience. And therefore, we need a continual high priest who intercedes on behalf of his people that are a part of this covenant people of God, who have believed and trusted in the sufficiency of His of His saving work, of His sacrificial work, and who have submitted the heart and the mind and all that we are to His Lordship, to continue to intercede on our behalf when we do not obey. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, says this. You can just jot that down. Hebrews seven twenty-five. Consequently, he, that is Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. One more. First John chapter 1. First John chapter 1. You can't get any better than this. First John 1 8. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Elect, chosen, exiles in the world, scattered abroad. That happened according to God's foreknowing of them before the ages began. That was made experientially effectual in their lives by the sanctifying work of God the Holy Spirit in the proclamation of the gospel. That results in forgiveness of sins and submission to the Lordship of Christ all through and by the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus. And then he says... All of that leads to this point. May grace and peace be multiplied to you.